Our scripture this morning is Matthew 5, verse 27 through 30. If you have your Bible, you can pull it up or you can pull it up in your app. It'll also be on the screen behind me, Lord willing. This is the words of Jesus. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Go into hell. This is the words of God. You may be seated. Well, we're in a series on the Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. And, and this is Jesus' great declaration of what his kingdom looks like. And he started out back in the beginning of chapter 5 by telling us who was in his kingdom. He said, these are who are in my kingdom. These are the, the poor in spirit, the meek, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. This is who is in my kingdom. And then he said, here's what effect my people, who the people who are part of my kingdom have on the world around them. And Matthew 5, 16, he said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The, the effect that his that what we're just praying for, what we're just talking about, the fact that we as believers, the, the, the people who dwell in his kingdom should be having on the world around us is that the world would see our good works and then give glory to the Father, our Father who is in heaven. And then he told us what kind of character his people have. He said their righteousness, our righteousness, should exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he, what he was saying was that he's going to change the hearts of his people deep down inside. So that, here's the purpose, so that their, their righteousness, our righteousness, righteousness wouldn't just be skin deep. It wouldn't just be based upon our actions, the things that we do and the things that we don't do, but that, that our righteousness would be down to our very heart of, our, of who we are. He, he's been telling us that the, really, is that the entryway into his kingdom isn't, obviously isn't through rebellion, isn't in going our own way, figuring our own way to do whatever we want to do, but also our entryway into the kingdom is not through a, a religion that simply changes our behavior. That actually us just changing our behavior, using religion to change our behavior is actually a way oftentimes to shield our hearts from the change that truly needs to happen. The entryway into the kingdom of Jesus is only by following Jesus. And he's going to, if we follow him, reach down and change us deep down at the very heart level if we follow him. Which is great news. It's great news because it's great news that we can be changed. That's good news. But it also means that we must be changed. We can be changed, that's great news, but it also means that we must be changed. And so what Jesus does then is he kind of, in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he starts to hit on a number of topics that are aimed at our hearts. He, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to do some heart-level surgery on us. He's probing the depth of our hearts to show us where we are either in outright rebellion against God, against his way, or the ways in which we find workarounds so we can justify ourselves without actually seeing our hearts changed. And last week we looked at anger, and this week we're looking at, this is awesome, lust. 
Jesus addresses lust. Let's look at the passage again that I just read a few minutes ago, but it might be out of our memory now. Matthew 5, 27 through 30, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now this passage is about sex and lust, but it's not only about that. What point is Jesus making? Well, one, he's painting a picture of what life would and will like under his rule and reign, but he's also showing us the ways that we're prone to deflect his rule and his reign in our actual lives. He's showing us how deep his rule should go and and that it is all the way to our hearts and motives. He's showing us, if we'll allow him, he's showing us what our hearts and motives actually are. In fact, what he's showing us is how deep the pollution of sin goes in each of us. Jesus is using lust and last week anger as the gateway to the sinfulness of our sin. Uh, to, to get a perspective on what he's talking about here, let, let, let's do a thought experiment. What should human relationships look like? If the fall had never had happened, if we were created male and female in the image of God, and we express each of us in our maleness and femaleness, each of us in the, in the individual imprint of God upon us as human beings, if we reflect the glory of God, what would our relationships look like with each other? Well, I think it, we would be able to respect the image of God in each other. Instead of looking at each other as objects of either attraction or not attraction, as looking at each other, trying to gauge whether I'm attractive to you, whether I can pull you into my world or not. I'd be looking at you and seeing how you reflect the glory of God. The image of God is shown in you, and I would give God glory for the beauty of his creation, for the beauty of the people that he's created, and, 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 and to be able to enjoy that in a way that is healthy and whole. Without, I could see someone I'm attracted to, I find attractive and look, and nice looking and say, wow, isn't God a glorious, beautiful God that he would create someone that beautiful and attractive? That shows me just how attractive God must be if they're made in his image. But it doesn't mean that I have to have them or own them myself. We should be able to live if if, uh, the fall had never occurred, male and female, in honor, showing honor to each other. Honoring that you and are a son or a daughter of the Father, and I am as well. And we should be able to selflessly honor God for the wonder of his creation. And we should be able to relate to each other as brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, and not just as objects of attraction. Not just someone that I want to pull in or use for myself. But that's not where we are, are we? We've had a sexual revolution in the U.S. 60 years or so ago. 
totally changed the way that we relate to each other publicly in terms of sex and attraction. And then we had, over the last few number of years, right, we had some corrections that have come in, right? The Me Too movement, issues about awareness of, of abuse and other issues. And what we're seeing, though, after 60 years of a, of a radically sexualized culture is we're seeing what that has produced. What we see is that sex apart from love and commitment breeds sexual abuse. When you have sex and love, apart from love and commitment, it breeds sexual abuse because where the other person becomes an object to be used rather than the person I give myself to and commit myself to in a covenantal relationship. What we see is the pornography industry breeds objectification of people and human trafficking. Even secular people and secular corporations are seeing this these days. That pornography is not something that's just light, it's like something that you happen to enjoy uh, imbibing in or using it from time to time, but it's something that is always progressive, it's something that always pulls us deeper in, it's always something that takes us further and further and further, and it always deals in the objectification and the degradation of human beings who are made in the image of God. And it brings darkness in our own souls. We as a society are as sexualized as we've ever been, but, but here's what's interesting. I was just reading an article this week. We are actually, as a society, having less sex than we've ever had before. Isn't that weird? We're more sexualized than we ever have been, but we're actually having less sex than we ever have before as, as Americans. And this goes back, these numbers go back to pre-pandemic, and it's actually the most stark among young people. Young people ages 18 to 24 are far less sexually active than they were with each other than they were years ago, even 10 years ago. And it's too soon for us to really know exactly why those numbers are, but here's what the researchers, these are secular researchers, by the way, this is what the number of researchers think that it points to right now, is that, that it, the signs point to we are less sexually active with each other as human beings in America because we, are, we have easy access to porn and dating apps. There's been a, a, a depersonalization of sex, of turning other people, which is always where it goes, we remove sex from the parameters that God made it for a self-disclosure, a self-giving of myself to someone else in a covenant that lasts forever, a lifetime. When we depersonalize sex, it, it never pays off in the end. In other words, our sex rebellion against God is not paying off. People are lonelier and sex seems darker than it did 60 years ago. And you would think that would mean the time is right for the way of Jesus in our sexuality to actually shine forth in our society. That's actually been the, one of the earmarks of Christianity in the past, actually. In the very early beginnings of Christianity, one of the things that made Christianity stand out was the fact that, that the believers were radically committed to sex inside of marriage for the glory of God. 
Not prudish towards sex. Not saying sex is bad and evil. Recognize that God created sex, but he created it in the, in the context of a covenantal relationship between a man and a woman where they are covenant together for life and they are self-giving, not just in the bedroom, but in all of life. And that sex was a key and important, an apex part of that self-giving. But where the church doesn't seem to be offering a compelling vision of human flourishing in our sexuality. And I think that's because we're either caught up, each of us individually, racked by our own worldly following after lust, or we're too busy justifying ourselves by throwing grenades at people who are outside of the church, throwing grenades at their sexual sin and their sexual deviations and their sexual issues. Jesus said, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. God created sex as a part, as I said, of of a covenantal commitment of love to a spouse that complements the image of God. And what Jesus is saying is while that is beautiful and that is lovely, lust is a perversion of that beautiful commitment. Here's what lust is. Lust is when our sexual drive and attraction, which is given to us by God, made to us as by, made for us as a part of our life by God. Just as you have other appetites and drives and desires. Lust, though, is when our sexual drive and attraction is removed from love. And lust is not love. Attraction is not love. Love is Commitment to someone for their highest good. God has designed that sex would be a part of a covenantal commitment to someone for life. It's a giving of yourself to someone, not a taking. Lust is a perversion of what God made, the good thing God made lust to be, that God made love to be, a self-giving and not a taking. Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, the the wording here is when someone looks at a woman with lustful intent. Is Is it wrong? Is it sin if you look at someone and you find them attractive? Is that sin? Is that wrong? No. Lust or lustful intent is whenever I look at someone, the the picture, the wording of the original language here is I look at someone with the intention of causing them to lust in return. It's not just attraction, it's when it goes beyond that. And lust is something that we all deal with, everyone, men and women, young and old. Uh, It's been interesting to talk this week about this passage uh, with different people, men and women, different ages, to hear the responses is something that every single person deals with. One of my favorite stories, you may have heard me tell it before, there's this guy who had, I think it was like four or five teenagers at the exact same time. And he went to visit his grandmother. She was old, like 80s, upper 80s something. And he said, and she said, how's, how's, how things going with the family? He said, it's going fine, but you know, I've got all these teenagers Man, it is nothing but the issues with the opposite sex going on right now. And he said, Grandma, when do they get to the age 
where, they don't have to de- where we don't have to deal with that anymore. And she said, well, Sonny, you're going to have to ask somebody older than me. <laughs> it's something that we all have to deal with. And that's because lust is not just about physical attraction. Lust, looking at someone with lustful intent and trying to draw them into lust with me is a replacement for our longing and our loneliness. We feel alone. We feel misunderstood. And lust offers relief. But it's a broken substitute for the kind of committed love that it's supposed to be a part of. And look what Jesus says that sin and lust cause us to do. Now he's speaking to the Jews and he says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you this. Well, why did he have to say that? Why did he say it that way? He said it that way because the Jews had to figure out, God said don't commit adultery. And so adultery means exactly this. It means sleeping with another man's wife or someone who is not married, not your wife. So therefore... Everything else is on the table, and it's only until you've crossed that line that you've crossed into going against the commandment. And isn't that what we do? Don't we try to find ways? I used to be a, uh, I used to uh, be in youth ministry, and uh, many many years ago, and one of the questions you would consistently get from teenagers is, "How far can we go before it's too far?" But that's the question that we all ask. What can I do that keeps me from doing the thing that God said not to do? As if the issue is some code of conduct that I have to make sure that I don't cross instead of seeing my own sinful heart in the lustful intentions and passions that are there that actually drive me. Sin causes us to pervert the law and sin causes us to redirect the blame. That's what the Jews had done. The Jews had, had figured it out so that if, that if a man actually did cross the line and sleep with another man's wife, that the woman would be stoned. She would be killed, and he would be okay. Or if a man wanted to divorce his wife, and like, man, I want to commit adultery, but I'm not going to do that. I'm feeling this lustful intent for this other woman over here. I can tell this woman, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and boom, I'm free from her, and now I can go to this woman. Is that Okay. No, it's a perversion of what God has called us to do. That's what lust and sin always cause us to do, to pervert the law and to redirect the blame, and it blinds us to our own responsibility before God. Jesus is telling us that it's the very core of us, it's in our heart that sin begins. The thought comes. The imagination starts to form a picture. Desire rises. And Jesus shows us it's right there that we're trapped in sin. I may not take it any further. I may, it may, I may keep it to be an unseen sin. It may be a very respectable sin, but I'm already trapped in sin. My accountability partner, I may not have to tell them. I may not have to tell my spouse. I may come off Scott clean. My browser may not show any history. I don't have to explain anything to anybody, but my conscience condemns me before God because I am being driven by in my core of cores, in my heart, a passion of lust. 
And Jesus tells us there are terrible consequences of lust and sin. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. We love that word, don't we? I can feel it in modern church when you say the word hell. It just, the whole room just ironically freezes. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into, there's that word again, hell. Jesus is saying that when we are driven by lust, in our, in our, whether we act on it or not, when we are driven by lust in our soul, in our heart of hearts, that the first thing that happens is hellfire is brought into our relationships. We lose the ability to connect and connect with our spouse or other people around us freely. Have you found that to be hard to connect to people of the opposite sex. I don't mean like, like awkward like me in high school awkward, but I mean, have you found it difficult and awkward to connect with people of the opposite sex? It may be that, that lust has driven you to an extent that it has brought hellfire into your relationships with other people and you cannot see other people apart from them being objects and you're con- consistently racked with guilt because of that. And it flavors the relationships you have with the people around you. You can't connect with your spouse. You can't connect with your friends freely because hellfire has been brought into your, to your relationship. And it sets us up for a hellfire in our future. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. How many, of, how many Christians, I just wonder, today in our society, in our churches, are deceived? Because the thing that's really ruling and directing their lives is is not love, the love of God, but it's actually lust. Lust distorts our view of God. It turns those of us who who are consistently racked, and I am in that boat. It turns those of us who are racked by lust and the guilt that corresponds to it, it turns us from looking at our loving father, from, from looking at him as a loving father, to looking at him as some sort of cop. Like when I'm, I'm speeding down the highway, I don't want to be caught, I'm looking for a policeman. I'm hoping he doesn't catch me this time. And that's the way I begin to look at my loving heavenly father as if he's some sort of cop that's looking to catch me. I, move, I lose the view of a forgiving Savior and Lord. It has terrible consequences. And it, it chokes out our power as Christians. I think a great reason that we lack power in our community is because the reign of sin and lust in our hearts. But have you noticed, this is a lot of good news so far, right? But have you noticed that Jesus leaves us on a bit of a cliffhanger? I mean, the, the section on, on lust ends, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell, period. He moves on to the next subject. He, he did that on 
anger as well. In fact, he does that on each of these sections. He says, my way is totally different than the world's broken way. And in fact, any other way is a perversion, it's a gross counterfeit. He also says there's multiple ways to pervert it. You can narrow it and redefine it so it doesn't get down to your heart and intentions. And then he tells us that either way leads us to destruction and hell. And it's so serious here, he tells us, as he does in other places of the gospel, that it's better to lose your eye or your hand or anything else than to fall into sin. And where in the world does that leave us? Can a blind man still lust? Absolutely. Would one less hand or one less eye cause you or me to stop from sinning? What if we lost both hands, both eyes? Would that stop us from sinning? No. Because Jesus says it happens in our minds, it happens in our hearts, right? Some people actually try this remedy. There, there are people throughout Christian history who've actually cut off parts of their body that they thought caused them to sin. And you know what they found on the other side? They were still there, embedded in their mind, embedded in their heart, the drive, the desire, the sin. You know what they discovered? The same thing that we discovered when we put an internet filter on our computer or had an accountability partner come and help us. Does it destroy sin? No. It just gives you more creative ways to find a workaround. The truth is that we actually can't kill sin. We cannot actually kill sin. We can't do it. You can't do it. You can choke it out. You can try to choke out lusting for a while, but you know what sin will do? It'll poke its head back up in a a whole different way. It'll be anger or jealousy or gossip, and it'll come back around and be lust one day. You cannot conquer. You cannot kill sin in your life because the problem that we have isn't just lust. The problem that we have is sin embedded in our hearts, in our souls. And Jesus uses this strong language, not as a prescription to how we can kill sin, but as a value statement saying it's not, it's worth losing anything not to go that way. But do you know why when when we read this language, better to cut off your your hand, pluck out your eye, you know why we recoil from that kind of language? Because we count our lives as more dear than Christ. That's the reason that lust continues to bloom and grow in our souls. That's the reason that anger and jealousy and gossiping continues to find good ground in our souls. Yet Jesus said, for whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Why? Because you gain him. You gain Jesus. You can't kill something that's so precious to you as your lust. You can't kill something that's become such a a core part of who you are. You need something to replace it. You need something to eclipse it. You need a greater affection that will drive it away. You need something or someone more powerful that can choke out the power of sin and lust and the power that it has over you. You need Jesus. He, notice what he said, Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, do whatever you do, but don't go in that way. 
But what did he do? He was pierced for our transgression. He was wounded for our iniquity. His side was pierced. Look to Jesus. See the one who loves you. See the one who is so tender with you even though you are a sinner. See the one who cleanses, with you, cleanses you even though you are so dirty. See the one who claims you even though you are so unlovable and have wronged him so many ways and so many times. See the one who gives you true freedom even though you have been bound. See the one who possesses all power and it freely offers it to you. The one who is racked by lust and sin. The one who is powerless to kill it. Are you a sinner? Are you bound by lust? Are you bound by other sins? Flee to him. Are you a limping saint? Man, I I can never get over this thing. I have to keep, Randy, you don't know how many times I've cleared my browser memory. You don't know how how many times I've started over. You don't know how many support groups I've been to. You don't know how many times I've had to confess. You know how empty I keep coming up. Are you a limping saint? Limp to him. Are you a sin-strapped Christian? Fly to him. Are you a sleepy believer? Awaken to him. Are you broken and lonely? Cry out to him. It's only in seeing and believing him to be the lover of your soul, even though you have run away from him. That song we are singing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. It's only his great love for you and for me that can eclipse and Power away our lowlier drives and desires for things other than him. Why would you not cry out to him? You know, he will not cast you out. Randy, if I had to tell someone beside me this morning the things that I have done, the things that I have seen, the things I've participated in, I know they would reject me. He wouldn't. He was there when you did them. And he's here with you now offering out his blood-stained hands and his, the love of the Father to you as, his, as you're his God's own child. He won't cast you out. He bore every sin and every example of lust that you have, the drive and desire that you have. He bore that willingly and lovingly for you and his love and his glory can eclipse the power of sin and lust in your life and that's the only thing that can and can you imagine what it looks like for a group of people that limp to the savior owning exactly who they are and where they have been and what they have done but glorying and exulting in and joy-filled because of his great love for them that he always and continually brings them in. Can you imagine how attractive 
and weird and enticing and, un- and beautiful that kind of community, that kind of family of people would be. That is Jesus to you and that is Jesus to me. I'm going to pray for us this morning and we're going to open up communion for the saints of God this morning. And you can limp your way to the front, you can run your way to the front, but you come and say, this body, this piece of this bit of his body that is being handed to me, this cup of his blood that is being handed to me, he, sh- he was broken and he shed it willingly to bring me in. And I'm no less a believer than Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or St. Paul because all of them only fell upon and limped to the Savior who bled and died for them. And you are accepted and brought in. Maybe this morning you need to have someone pray with you. It could be about lust, it could be about sin, it could be about anything else. Grab somebody beside you, grab me, grab someone and say, please pray with me this morning that I, I would have the love of Christ eclipse the power of sin and lust in my life. It would break the pattern that has been built there. That I would no longer rely upon my own efforts to overcome. But I would see Christ's great love for me. And I would experience his freedom and his love no matter who I am or what I've done. I'm gonna pray, we're gonna sing and worship that glorious Lord. I pray you would sing joyfully from your soul if that so stirs your heart or if you're mourning this morning, again, get someone to pray with you. If you're a believer in Christ, communion is open to you. If you're not a believer in Christ, let today be the day that you trust in this Christ, that you run to him, that you flee to him. Find somebody beside you and say, I want to know what it means to become a Christian or come up and grab me. I'd be more than happy to pray with you this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that though you have called us to something greater, You've called us not to be driven and pulled about by lust, but yet can we find ourselves helpless and hopeless in the midst of that fight? Can I thank you that you fought that fight for us? Can I pray that your love for us, your graciousness to us would eclipse the drives and desires of sin and lust in our hearts and souls? God, would you make us a people who humbly confess who we are and what we've done, but we sing with joy of who you are and what you've done. In the name of Jesus, amen.